Hello and welcome back to Psycho Science with Kayla and Hannah. It's the show about science and psychology and for some reason recently history, um, <laughs> including today. Hannah, how are you? You know what? I'm doing pretty good. I slept like 12 hours last night, so yep. I should be ready to go. And that's why this episode goes up late. <laughs> um, I had an OSCE this week, and for those non-medical folk, an OSCE is a simulated patient in a room with a case, and it's very nerve-wracking because you have, like, two cameras on you and your professors are watching you outside of the door and it's also recorded and then they grade you and then you have to watch yourself no and it's like an hour um still haven't seen that yet but that's horrifying they're absolutely horrifying like do i really do that with my hands and the answer is yes i do do that with my hands why do they call it that oski yeah i have no idea like is it like a person's name no, it's like an acronym. We can look it up. Because I'll tell you, my grandpa has a friend named Oski. Really? Yeah. It stands... Oh, wait. We're going to do this. Objective Structural Clinical Examination. I mean, okay. Okay. Anywho. Tell us about your neighbor. <laughs> okay, so... I just told the story to Kayla, and she wanted me to say it on the podcast, so here we are. So, I live in, apartment co- in an apartment complex in a college town, and so I can always hear everything. Everyone's always loud, like, whatever. And so, this happened on Valentine's Day, and I was laying in my bed, and I could hear this guy, like, talking on the phone outside of my window, and I was like, okay, dude, like, please go away, but, like, whatever, and so I'm eavesdropping on this conversation, and he just says, yeah, so I texted her, and I said, hey, you got any Valentine's Day plans, and she just responded and said, LMAO. Rest in peace, my dude. R.I.P., brother. That's Okay. Sometimes you get the girl, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't. Anywho, what are we talking... Do I go first this week or do you? I honestly have no idea. Oh. Who do you want to go first? Um, I don't care. Yours is shorter. Do you want to go first? Okay, sure, I'll go first. Wait, what was last week's episode? I truly could not tell you. (laughs) I think I did mass hysteria. I think I went second last time. Okay. I don't know. I think you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did sea monkeys and then you did mass hysteria. So you're first. Okay, perfect. Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about something called the Monty Hall problem. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Okay, perfect, perfect. I was hoping you had it. (laughs) Okay, so I wrote a disclaimer already. And the disclaimer is that it's not exactly psychology, and and maybe it's not even interesting. Um, but it's what I feel like talking about. So that's what we're talking about. So it's really a math problem, more specifically a statistics problem, more specifically a probability problem, and statistics is kind of psychology. So that's why I'm claiming it. That's why I'm is claiming it? I can do it. What? We have to take statistics classes for psychology. I mean, every health science does. Well, because you have to, like, learn how to read research and stuff. Well, yeah. So, like, statistics. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say that's an exclusive psychology. Well, so that's why I'm claiming it. That's why I'm claiming I'm allowed to do it. Okay. And also, there's, like, a little bit of psychology to it, but, like, I'll tell you. Okay. So, the Monty Hall problem is basically a brain teaser, and it's also a probability puzzle, and it's loosely based on the American television game show, Let's Make a Deal. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. And it was named after that, after that show's original host, who's Monty Hall. So it's the Monty Hall problem. Um, and mathematically, it's closely related to other problems of this type so the three prisoners problem and the Burt Rand's box paradox but I guess that's only useful information if you know those no, math what problems. that is 
I do well, not. Well, so that's a that's a little call out if you know what that is. Okay. okay. You see, so, I'm a science nerd. I'm an English <laughs> nerd. I am not a math nerd. But I appreciate math. math. I do it when I have to. It's kind of cool when Calc 2 works, but that's true. I'm not going out of my way to be a math person. I feel you. Okay. So, it was originally posed um, by Steve Selvin in a newspaper called The American Statistician in 1975. Mm-hmm. And it became famous as a question from a reader's letter quoted in Marilyn Vostavant's Ask Marilyn column in Parade Magazine in 1990. Okay, so here's the question. Suppose you're on a game show, and you're given a choice of three doors. Behind one door is a car, and behind the others are goats. You pick a door, say number one, and the host, who knows what's behind the doors, opens another door, say door number three, which has a goat. He then says to you, do you want to change your choice to door number two instead? Is it to your advantage to switch your doors or to stick with your original door? Now that you say this, I do know what you're talking about. Okay. I know this. I don't remember the answer, though. Well, Because, I mean, you have a 50-50 chance now. Well, so, Kayla, what do you think just as a regular person who doesn't really know? This implies that I'm not indeed a regular person. (laughs) Would you switch your doors or not? Dude, I'm so... Uh, I mean, there's a great possibility because I don't think I would have chosen the door and be like, yeah, it's under door number three, number one, whichever one Mm -hmm. you said. I don't know because I'm also a suspicious person, so I feel like the host was trying to throw me off. Exactly. dang, my show's not going to be that long if she guesses this is the right door immediately. Mm -hmm. So it could be in my best interest. It could also not. I mean, it's a 50-50 chance at this point. Am I wrong? So you think you should just flip a coin and, like, Yeah. Okay. Perfect, because that's wrong. Amazing. (laughs) So the solution is kind of tricky, so if you don't get it, like, tell me that you don't get it, and I'll try to explain it differently. Um, And, oh, I thought this was funny. I literally had to watch a video from Khan Academy to understand it. Oh, you remember I good old Khan, Khan Academy? I still use Khan Academy. Don't give it a good old. Well, <laughs> I haven't there. used it in. I haven't used it in probably like I don't know six years. They have a whole like med school section. Oh. Oh. Hey, I didn't know that. T. Okay. <clears throat> so, it's commonly believed that at first your chance of choosing the correct door was one third. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's three doors. You have a one third chance. And after a correct door is in, is revealed, your chance becomes one half, right? They take out one, so your chance is a half of getting it now. So given this, it shouldn't matter if you switch or not, because you have a 50-50 chance of winning with either door. You might as well flip a coin. But that's wrong. Because if you switch, it turns out that your chance of winning actually doubles. So, let me like give that. you an example. What? I don't like that. I know. I know. So let me tell you. So, um, the way they explain it is just by giving an example. So I'm just going to give you the example. Amazing. Okay. So there are three doors. A, B, and C. Door A has the car behind it. So if you chose door A and the host shows you nothing behind door B, you switch to door C and you lose. So in that case, switching would make you lose because you'd pick the correct door in the beginning, you would have lost. However, if you choose door B, the host shows you nothing behind door C, you switch to door A, you win. Mm -hmm. Lastly, if you chose door C originally, the host shows you nothing behind door B, you switch to door A, you win. Mm -hmm. So... Given this, the only way you lose is if you choose the door that had the prize behind it on the first attempt. So you had a one-third chance of doing that. However, if you hadn't picked the winning door originally, you have a two-third chance of winning by switching. Interesting. 
You see what I'm saying? Well, yes, but also, what? Because how is it two thirds? Okay, because I mean, it's here's... one third times one third, but yeah, I don't know. Not one third times one third. One third plus, plus. one third. It's fine. Well, because okay, the other way they explained it is that let's say you have the door that you chose, okay, originally. And that door has a one-third chance of winning. Now there's the other two doors. We call those the others, the ones you did not pick. And they both have a one-third chance. Mm -hmm. Then the host reveals that one of the doors does not have the car. Okay? So that door is taken away because you know that that door does not have the car. But that one-third probability still has to go somewhere. Because it didn't just exit the chat. Like, you learned something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that one-third is still floating around. So we have to figure out somewhere to attribute that to. So you can't attribute it to your door because you didn't learn anything about your door. But you did learn something about the other two doors. And so that one-third has to be added to the other door that's still remaining. I see. Because it's kind of like it changes the problem from you pick this door to you can have this door or you can have this door and this door. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Because you learned something about the other door. So now it's like you're gaining that if you switch and you choose the other one. <laughs> I see. You still hate it. I still hate it. Absolutely. <laughs> but I understand. Okay, so, Vastavant um, ha- gave her response and said, hey, uh, the contestants who switched would have a two-third chance of winning the car, and the other contestants who didn't switch would only have a one-third chance. Suck on that, okay? Um, yeah. And so the probability, what I'm telling you, depends on specific assumptions about the host and the contestant, so I'm going to tell you those quick assumptions. So, the first assumption is that there's more information about doors two and three than were available at the beginning of the game when door one was chosen, and the host deliberate action adds value to the door that he did not choose to eliminate, but not to the one that was chosen by the contestant, which is basically what I just explained to you. Mm -hmm. There's your door, and then there's the others, and he added value to one of the others by eliminating one of them. So the other assumption is that switching doors is a different action than choosing between the two remaining doors at random, as the first action uses previous information and the latter does not. So the reason that it's not 50-50 is because you gained information. Yeah. If it had just been two doors, then it would have been 50-50. It's a different decision. But since you gained information, it's not that. Um, And the last assumption is that your chance of winning by switching doors is directly related to your chance of choosing the winning door in the first place. If you choose the correct door on your first try, then switching loses. If you choose a wrong door on your first try, which you have a two-third chance of doing, then switching wins. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So, many readers of Vastavant's column refuse to believe that switching is beneficial, despite her explanation. After the problem appeared in Parade, approximately 10,000 readers, including nearly 1,000 of those who had PhDs, wrote to the magazine, and most of them claimed that she was wrong. I mean... And so they included an example of what one reader sent in. This is from a guy named Scott Smith, who has a PhD from the University of Florida. He said... You blew it, and you blew it big. Since you seem to have difficulty grasping the basic principle at work here, I'll explain. After the host reveals a goat, you now have a 1 in 2 chance of being correct. Whether you change your selection or not, the odds are the same. There is enough mathematical illiteracy in this country, and we don't need the world's highest IQ propagating more. Shame. Ooh, he snapped. People were pissed. People were not having us. Wow, this is like YouTube <laughs> drama, but the 90s. Yeah. Or 1970s, but yeah. I thought you said 1990. Uh, 
It was originally posed in 1975. Oh, I see. I thought you said 90. Never mind. Sorry. So, even when given explanations, simulations, and formal mathematical proofs, many people would still not accept that switching was the best strategy. Um, And there was this guy, Paul Erdos, and he was one of the most prolific mathematicians in history. And he remained unconvinced until he was shown a computer simulation demonstrating Vastavant's predicted result. Mm -hmm. So, like, even really smart people were like, there's no way. I don't care what you tell me. There's no way. I don't believe you. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) So this is where the small piece of psychology comes in that I'm claiming. So the problem is a vertical paradox because the correct choice that you should switch doors is so counterintuitive, it seems absurd, but it's still demonstrably true. Hmm. So it's just, it's literally a paradox where you're like, no, that's so stupid. There's no way, but it's still true. That's exactly Um, how I feel every day. (laughs) so um they did a study and out of 228 subjects in one study only 13 percent chose to switch the door in her book the power of logical thinking Voss savant quoted a a little quoted a cognitive psychologist and said no other statistical puzzle comes so close to fooling all the people all the time and even even nobel physicists systematically give the wrong answer and they insist on it and they're ready to berate and print those who propose the right answer so basically that's it and also one last dig that they threw in at humans was that pigeons repeatedly exposed to the problem show that they can rapidly learn to always switch and humans still won't. Oof. I mean... So basically, humans are dumber than pigeons. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Goodbye. humans are just more complex because they have emotions and I feel like you should have had that opinion more than I do. <laughs> I love pigeons because pigeons are in so much psychological (laughs) research. I'm like, yes, baby. Very interesting. Because pigeons don't overthink and humans overthink, and that's what's wrong with us. If we just stopped overthinking everything. But if we stopped overthinking everything, we would have no scientific breakthroughs, discoveries, or stories, or anything. We would just still be figuring out fire. Good for us. <laughs> that reminds yeah. me of a video, and it's really gross, but let me just tell you about it. Um, this got recommended in my YouTube literally yesterday, and it's a guy who only eats raw meat. Ew. Have you seen this? No, but I've heard of the people who believe that, like, fruits and vegetables are the root of all disease, so they only eat meat. Well, so this guy only eats meat, and uh, the first 30 seconds of the video are so chilling because he goes into his kitchen, and he says something, and he's just like, I'm just a guy who wants to eat his intestine smoothie. And he literally takes sheep's intestines, blends them up with water, and drinks them. And he's like, mm, sir? yummy. Sir? I'm I like, And he lives in um, Kentucky. Of course he does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he has four kids. Do they all eat this? Well, okay, so let me tell you this. He was like, yeah, they've been helping... Because he slaughters the lambs, like, at his house in his backyard. No. And he was like, yeah, I've had the kids help me out with slaughtering the animals um, since they were really young. And their kids were like seven and eight so i'm like how young is really young and so apparently the kids school like found out that like the dad was having them watch him slaughter these animals and the school like reached out and was like hey what the heck are you doing and he was like this is how i get my food sorry okay i'm sorry if that was offensive (laughs) But he was like, this is how I get my food. And then the school was like, I mean, okay, I guess. Like, what can we really say? Oh, so, yeah. wow. Ugh. 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not vegan or vegetarian. I eat meat, and I understand where it comes from, but just the thought of exclusively eating that. I mean, I'm a flexitarian. Oh my god, mood. Which means I only eat meat when I go out because I hate cooking meat. It's disgusting. I agree. I think Cadaver Lab really sealed the deal for me not wanting to cook meat. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Ugh. Anywho. Yeah, and one of the comments was like, I feel like this is the halfway point to cannibalism. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even cannibals cook the meat, though. Did I ever tell you the cannibal story? No. That's so vague. (laughs) Okay. I went to camp once, and there was a missionary there, because it was like a Bible camp. I was probably, I don't know, like 11, 12. And so the missionary was talking about these people in Papua New Guinea are cannibalists, or they're cannibals, so they were like trying to make them not be cannibals. And I guess everybody in the village was a cannibal except for this one guy. So the missionary dude's like, hey, why aren't you one of them? Like, that's cool, but why? And the guy, I guess he, he got a hand. Like, when he was younger, like, I guess the kids don't get, like, the good meat. So he had been handed a hand to eat. And so he takes a bite right out of that nice, thick muscle right by the thumb. Uh And when he bit down, the hand, like, grabbed his face. (gasps) Oh, my God. In that sense. (laughs) So. um, Would that happen, though? Like, can you confirm that? Oh, yeah. so, like, if you bought, if you bite, like, that specific part, it would, like... Well, because you have all these tendons in your wrists, which is why, like, there's a bunch of tendons, a bunch of blood vessels and stuff. They're covered by the carpal tunnel. Yes, that's actually, it's called the carpal tunnel. That's mm-hmm. not the syndrome we think of. So all those nerves, or, sorry, all of those tendons, so you can actually grab them down in your wrists. Like, when you do, like, a cadaver, you can grab them, and it will make the hand close um so yeah he probably just hit one of the tendons and it closed some of those tendons around his face yeah that's the creepiest thing i've ever heard (laughs) don't be a cannibal kids okay Um, done anywho are you ready to learn some history like i said this is officially a history podcast I'm ready. Um, today, I'm talking about the history of the periodic, periodic table. I love the periodic table. I just, I love chemistry. It's my favorite topic ever. Uh, I have a periodic table right above me currently, and I carry one around in my planner. It's it just was, useful. It really is. I mean, maybe not for the, the normal person, but sometimes I'm just like, hey, what is that molecular weight? It was more useful when I was actually teaching chemistry and tutoring it, so, or taking a chemistry class. But, you know, you gotta, what am I gonna do, get rid of it? No. Blasphemous. Part of my history. So, if you don't know what the periodic table is, it's an organization of the chemical elements based off of their atomic number, electron configurations, and chemical properties. Do you think there's anyone who doesn't know what the periodic table is? I don't know. Because, like, don't we all have to, like, at least know what it is in, like, high school? What if we're having middle schoolers listen to this podcast? I, okay, heard. Heard. It's absolutely genius, and I couldn't imagine actually doing it myself, like, putting it together and figuring all this Mm -hmm. out. So, the elements are in order of increasing atomic number, the rows are called periods, and the columns are called groups. Um, There is a two-century history of creating the table that we use currently um, because we had an increasing understanding of the chemical and physical properties of each of these elements, so it took a while. Some of the elements we know have been known since ancient times, which include platinum, mercury, tin, and zinc, and this is because they are found in their native form in pure form and are easy to dig up with tools. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Around 330 BCE, 
Aristotle had a theory that everything was made up of a combo of one or more roots. And he stole this idea from Impodosals, which is a Sicilian philosopher. The four roots, which are what we know as what Plato later calls the elements earth, water, air, fire. So, if you've never watched Avatar The Last Airbender, you know what these are. Um, essentially, this was like, it's, there are other similar ideas of this throughout history and religion. Um, one of those, notingly, is in Hinduism, there are five elements. Um, earth or Bhumi, water or Jela, fire or Tejas, air slash wind or um, Vayu, space zero or the void or Vayum. And so those are their five. Um, conveniently, this episode is a double whammy of the periodic table and the history of the discovery of chemical elements. So really hitting you with that one. I'm sure all of you... I'm sure all of you are like, you know what would be really cool? The history of chemistry. <laughs> uh, the first new discovered element was discovered by Henning Brand. He was a bankrupt German merchant who was on a quest to discover the Philosopher's Stone. Yes, the thing from Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> the Philosopher's Stone was meant to turn base metals that are inexpensive um, into gold. So a base metal would be, think of like plated rings or how... Pennies have a steel base covered in zinc, uh, the steel base to make any metal of sorts, basically. So steel's cheap, we cover it in gold, and say, here's a plated ring. The things that make your your fingers green. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in 1669, he distilled human urine to discover a glowing white substance called, he called it cold fire, or called desfier. Uh, he kept the secret until 1680 when Robert Boyle, a chemist, rediscovered phosphorus and published it. So he had discovered oh. phosphorus. Yes. Or Why do you called, keep it a secret? Because he, he was thought, embarrassed? No, because he <laughs> thought he was discovering the Philosopher's Stone. He thought he was on a quest. Goodness. Um... <laughs> All of this about phosphorus raised the question of what exactly an element was. Um, in 1661, Boyle defined a um, element as those primitive and simple bodies of which the mixed ones are said to be composed, and it's which they are ultimately resolved. Cool. <laughs> um, the first modern chemistry textbook is Luzier's uh, Traité Elementaire de or Elementary Treatise of Chemistry, and it was written in 1789 and first translated into English by writer Robert Kerr. Um, Lavoisier defined an element as a substance that cannot be broken down into a simpler substance by a chemical reaction. Uh, So this was our definition of an element until the discovery of subatomic particles. So Lavoisier had a list of what he calls simple substances or elements, um, that he believed could not be broken down any further. These were oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, phosphorus, mercury, zinc, and sulfur. Uh, He also included light and caloric, which were considered to be physical at the time. Uh, Caloric is an obsolete theory that heat has a self-repellent fluid which floated Um, From hotter to colder bodies, this theory was later replaced by the mechanical theory of heat and thermodynamics, which we're not going to talk about, but also a very cool theory. (laughs) Um, Love thermodynamics. Anywho, Lavoisier classified these elements as metals or non-metals. This was a very... This was the very basis and lacked a lot of details. A lot of leading chemists of the time refused to believe his findings, but the younger generation was convinced. So he was like Bernie, you know? Oh, I love that. (laughs) The boomers hate him, but the young, hot girls Bernie. Um, They were convinced. So in 1815, William Prout, an English chemist and physician, noted the weights of these elements were all multiples of hydrogen. And if you guys don't know, hydrogen is the first element. Um, 
1817, Johann Wolfgang Dobriere tried to classify the elements, marking one of the earliest attempts. In 1829, he formed the elements in groups of three, all of which had relating properties and called them triads. Uh, so triad law was defined as a chemi chemical analogous elements arranged in an increasing order of their atomic weights form, well-marked work, work, wait, what? Formed. Their atomic weights formed well-marked groups of three called triads in which the atomic weight of the middle element was found to be generally the arithmetic mean of the atomic weight of the other two in the triad. Sounds complicated. Yeah. Well, it's fine. So, if... Here's a, some of the triads. So, the alkali-forming elements, which were lithium, sodium, and potassium. Alkaline earth-forming elements, calcium, strontium, and barium. Salt-forming elements, chlorine, chlorine bromine, iodine. Um, and the acid-forming elements, sulfur, selenium, and tellurium. Which we still use... We use alkali earth. So... And alkali yeah. metals. Like, those are I still remember. names we use. You remember. You took chemistry. <laughs> so this theory was presented at a conference in Karlsruhe, Germany, and started the idea of classifying the elements. And two years later, the first system of organization was released. So Alexander Emile Bagheer de Chancourtoy was when... Wait, what? Okay, so Alexander Emile Beguer de Chancourtois found that when he ordered the elements by atomic weight, they had a similar characteristics at different intervals. So that's kind of how we know the columns each have very similar properties. Mm -hmm. um, so the telluric helix was created in 1862 as a 3d chart and named after the element tellurium because it was the center of his model the elements were arranged in a spiral on a cylinder by increasing atomic weight he noticed that the elements with similar properties lined up vertically on this cylinder the paper he published didn't include a chart okay loser why did you include yeah, the chart what? i know in 1863, he extended the paper by adding a chart which included ions and compounds. The following year, John Newlands presented his own classification of the 62 known elements. He had noticed trends in intervals of 8 by atomic mass, and they had similar, similar physical properties. He classified these into 8 groups, and each group had a progression sort of like the progression of musical notes, so the way he wrote it. So the problem was there was no room for new elements, and some of his elements occupied the same space, which just doesn't make sense. Boo. Boo. He tried. You know, a better than the spiral thing that he yeah. didn't even publish. Um, the Chemical Society refused to publish this. The Society's president, William Audling, stated that it could be controversial in some within the society said he might have well has just listed them in alphabetical order. That's yes. shady. <laughs> oh. Hey, everything you've worked on, it sucks. Thanks. It sucks. You should have just listed them out and made it easier on yourself. Um, so, Oding, which was the president that was like, hey, no alphabetical order, my dude. He tried to pre um, I can't see. He tried to publish his own table that same year, but got little recognition since he belittled Newland's chart. Good, because that's so shady. <laughs> so German chemist Lothar Mayer also noted the same trend. According to him, if the atomic weights were plotted as ordinates or vertically, and the atomic volumes and absence or horizontally the curve obtained a series of maximums and minimums the most electropositive elements would appear at the peaks of the curve in order of their atomic weights so electronegativity which this is electropositivity but it's just the opposite mm -hmm. electronegativity if you go from the bottom left corner up to the top right corner that's how yes. the elements flow so teehee um, I'm losing my mind. What year are we in? 1864. Okay. So in 1864, he published a book 
with an early periodic table only having 28 elements, even though we knew there were 62 at this time, but that's besides that's the point. Weird. Um, classified into six family based on valence. This was the first time they were classified this way, but he was held back with improper atomic weights. So, like, at least get the weights right, my dude. At least include them all, my dude. But, like, valence theory, yes. He later revisited his table in early 1870, which was published after his death, with 55 elements. Um, the series of periods all in by an element of alkali earth metals. We'll get to why it was published after his death later. The paper also included a line chart of relative atomic volumes, which illustrated periodic relationships of physical characteristics of the elements and which assisted Mayer in deciding where the element should appear in his periodic table. So it wasn't just, it was like, oh, here's a chart. Here's some info about it also. It's like a little flashcard. It's fun. <laughs> uh, so but by the time he had finished his table, Mendeleev's periodic table had already been in publication. The works appear to be independent of one another. Mendeleev's first table is the basis of the periodic table we use today. Mm-hmm. So his didn't get published because Mendeleev had already beat him to it. Aww. Uh, Science Mendel- is so competitive. It really is. It truly is. It's kind of it's kind of fun. I mean, we learned about that with the DNA helix. Yeah, kind of fun. So Dmitry Mendeleev was a Russian chemist who arranged the elements by atomic mass by relative molar mass, which is a molecular mass multiplied by Avogadro's number. Or tell me six. Point zero two two times ten to the twenty third. Heck yes. Okay. <gasps> wow. <laughs> I was like, it's up there in your brain. I know it is. Uh, some say that he played chemistry solitary on long train rides by manipulating the elements on cards with various fun facts about them listed. So this is how Mendeleev did it. He's like, oh, fun that's facts. Oh. Oh. It's kind of how I arranged my uh, furniture in my apartment, and I kind of cut them out. In a little piece of paper and I arranged my furniture so I didn't have to redo it a million oh, yes. times. You know, some people make fun of me for that. Um, Ruman, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So others say that he was inspired by the organization of, sans- of the Sanskrit alphabet, which his friend Otto von Bothlinkt shared with him. So he could have been inspired by the Sanskrit alphabet. I like the solitary theory because that's funny. Um, Using trends, he discovered some of the atomic weights were not correct and changed their placing accordingly. For instance, he figured there was no place for trivalent uranium with the mass of 120 in his work, and he doubled both the atomic weight and valency of uranium, suggesting that it was a hexavalent element with the atomic weight of 240. So he kind of, he did his thing. He was like, hey, these aren't working. I'm just going to switch the numbers around. Thank he's you. like, this, well, it was more like the chemical properties didn't make sense. And he's like, mm, or it should be like this. Okay. I mean, trivalent to hexavalent, that's like doubling. It's doubling the amount of rings around it. He went crazy. He went, he went for it. Mendeleev also found there were spots missing where there wasn't an element to fill with the characteristics in the correct mass, so he left a blank spot for them later to fill. The elements before and after the blanks were used in order to predict what these elements would be like when they were discovered. So he published this work in 1869 and sent it to a number of chemists, including Mayer, which is the guy who didn't publish his own. he continued to tweak his table. The following year, it became a tabular shape, and a year after that, it was named the periodic table. Ooh. The first predicted elements that he had predicted were discovered in 1875 when gallium was discovered. The properties were very close to Mendeleev's predictions of an element that he coined eka aluminium. So he named them... It was next to aluminum, I suppose. Is it next to aluminum? It's not, but we're gonna ignore that. It's, mm, well, anyway, I digress. This is a weird periodic table. We're not gonna, we're gonna. <laughs> uh, by the end of the following decade, two more of his predictions were confirmed, which helped the validity of his table. 
1888, both Mayer and Mendeley received the Davy Medal from the Royal Society in which their work was recognized on periodic law. Newland's analysis that chemicals... Wait, what? Oh, Newland's analysis, which was the guy way back that they told about the alphabetical alphabetical yes. order. I cannot speak today. Um, they he was re- later recognized with a gold medal five years after Mendeleev. Um, this was because Gilbert and Lewis's valence bond theory of 1960 and Irving Langmuir's octet theory of chemical bond from 1919 that the importance of eight was recognized. And if you don't know about the octet rule, did you really take chemistry? Even though it's kind of, it's kind of, like, it's a, it's a good basis, but it's really not true. It's valences and electron spin and, yeah. Okay. Quantum mechanics. So, in... 1902, Mendeleev's added the noble gases to her t- to his table, which were not previously accounted for, which the noble gases are the last column. Um, this was after in 19 or sorry in 1895, William Ramsey and Lord Rayleigh isolated argon from air and determined that it was a new element. Following this discovery, Ramsey noticed that. An entire group of gases, the noble gases, was missing from the periodic table. Um, using fractional distillation to separate air, Ramsey discovered three more noble gases in 1898: neon, krypton, and xenon. Imagine discovering three elements That's in one year. So crazy! Like the fact that he was like, "Hey, let's just take some air. Let's just do some stuff. Let's do some fractional distillation." Which I can is, only imagine they're just, like, putting air through a strainer. I mean, with little, little holes. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, so that's cool. The Mendeleev predicted 18 elements in total, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, although only half of those elements were later discovered. So he, nine were discovered, but he predicted 18. He noticed that an entire row of his table was missing between cerium and tantalum he claims was because of the nature of these elements um a lot of mistakes Mendeleev made was due to him strictly sticking to an eight column uh structure this made for sorry a lot of the mistakes Mendeleev made was due to him strictly sticking to an eight column structure this made for some of his projections to be false because their properties were not what he had anticipated. By night, if you don't know, the periodic table has 18 columns. Mm-hmm. Not eight. I mean, if you're not sitting with one in front of you, you might mistake it. <laughs> By 1904, the table had to be rearranged to include the noble gases and other... Sorry. <laughs> My groceries are being delivered. Um, oh, cool. The, the gate. I was trying to open it. Anyway, where was I? Da, 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 da. By 1904, the table had to be rearranged to include the noble gases and other newly discovered elements, but there was still a dead zone. And... It was added above hydrogen. There was a zero that rose above hydrogen and helium to include coronium, which was inspired by the solar corona. There was an atomic thin green line that was never recognized, but was actually neutonium um, in row zero. Also included ether, which was also believed to be an element in the region of the universe above the terrestrial sphere. And These don't exist. All of that was stupid. Yes, they're like, uh. Anywho, well, they're like, we were trying too hard. Actually, let's just wipe that from the record. <laughs> These were element zero and negative one. Um, no, not negative one. Just element zero. I was like, you can't have stuff below hydrogen. I'm sorry. Mendeleev believes very highly the very first light gas that we mentioned earlier. Uh, with an atomic weight several orders of magnitude smaller than that of hydrogen, which is the smallest known element that we know of today. 
He also predicted that it would rarely interact with other elements similar to noble gases in group zero. Yeah, so he was all mixed up. He's like, what? I forgot to let my dog out. Ta -ta -ra! The following year, Alfred Werney, a Swiss chemist, resolved the dead zone issue in the table. He determined that rare earth elements were the lanthanides, and some of them, and 13 of them, were known to lay within this gap. Although Mendeleev did know of lithium, cerium, and erbium, they were previously not accounted for in the table because the other lanthanides in their exact order were not known. This was part of the consequences their chemistry and their atomic masses being so similar. The discovery led to the periodic table with the with the 32 column form. So everybody's seen this in their periodic table probably where you have like the star and the two stars and then you look under and there's like the two rows under that. Those are the lanthanides and the actinides that are the, I can't even think of the other ones called. Anyways, so those actually go before your um, transition metals. So they would actually stick in and actually, well, that's not going to help the people. I was like, my period table actually is a 32 column one. I can't show that on the podcast. Um, so in 1900, only four radioactive elements were known. These were, you guessed it, radium, actinium, thorium, and uranium. These were termed radio elements and placed at the bottom of the periodic table because they had greater atomic weights than stable elements where their exact order was not known. Researchers did not believe that they were more radioactive elements and studied that extensively during the next decade. They did believe, not didn't, sorry. By 1912, about 50 different radioactive substances had been found in the decay of thorium and uranium. Beatrum Boltwood, an American chemist, proposed several decay chains linking these radioactive elements between uranium and lead. The problem was there was not enough room between lead and uranium to accommodate for these discoveries. So there were some duplicates or misidentifications of elements. This is just a hot mess. The radioactive decay also um, violated when the central principles of the periodic table and the chemical elements cannot under can't undergo transmutations or switching from one element to another and always had a unique identity. Since they're like deriving these from one another, they're like, mm, doesn't make sense, ma'am. Which I mean, fair. The following year in 1913, also this is a lot to be happening before 1913. Yeah, yeah. Right? I I always I mean it was a hundred years ago, but still I was like that they didn't they didn't know anything pre microwave they, they nothing. knew nothing. Uh, the following year in 1913, Frederick Soddy and Casimir Fajans found that all these substances emitted different radiation, and some of them were identical in chemical properties, and they shared the same place in the periodic table. These became known as isotopes, which come from the Greek word isotopos, meaning same place. So you, we know what isotopes are. Fun times, mm -hmm. fun times. Frederick Panath, an Aust Austrian chemist, decided a difference between the real elements and simple substances or the isotopes determined the existence of the different isotopes is mostly irrelevant in determining chemical properties. After Charles Glover Barclay discovered the characteristics of x-rays emitted from metals in 1906, Henry Mosley considered there was a possible correlation between x-ray emissions and physical properties of elements. Like I said, this is a lot for the early 1900s. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mostly was Charles Galton, Darwin Niels Bohr, and George... D. Hevze proposed the atomic mass or nuclear charge might maybe mathematically related to physical properties. Significant of these properties were determined by an experiment with an atomic nucleus and the discharge were discovered. <laughs> Science man. Um, in 1913, Dutch physicist Antonius van den Broek was the first 
to propose the atomic number or nuclear charge. He determined this by placing the elements in the periodic table, by the placement of the elements in the periodic table. He correctly determined the atomic numbers of all these elements and the atomic number 50 or 10. Wait, what? He correctly determined the Oh, he correct... And scene. He correctly determined... The atomic numbers of all the elements up to atomic number 50, which is 10, though he made several mistakes in determining with the heavier elements. He, however, did not have any method to experimentally verify the atomic number of elements and still believed it was because of atomic weight. So, I mean, honest mistake. A man without resources? Mosley later went on to test this method and figured a bunch of stuff out which enabled him to correctly place argon before potassium, cobalt before nickel, as well as delirium before iodine, which is in line with periodic trends. Mosley later, well, I said that, Carl Sagan Bond, a Swedish physicist, continued Mosley's work for elements of heavy, of the elements heavier than gold or element number 79 and found that the heaviest known element at the time was uranium which had an atomic number of 92. This allowed for gaps of the atomic number sequence where to be determined where there was a number not corresponding to elements and the gaps occur at atomic numbers 43, 61, 72, 75, 85, and 87. Cool. Cool. They're like oh we have things to discover my dude. In the 1910s and 1920s, there was more research in quantum mechanics, which led to new developments in the atomic theory and small changes to the periodic table. The Bohr model was developed during this time, which came with the idea of electron configurations that determine chemical properties. Uh, Bohr claimed that the elements in the same group behave the same because they have similar electron configurations, and that the noble gases had filled valent shells which is filled with the octet rule, which is why they don't interact with much. If you guys don't know what the Bohr model is, do you know what the Bohr model is? You probably do. You just don't know. Relatively. Essentially the octet rule, but there's some other fun things involved with it and the number of electrons in the outer shell, how many are missing and or they have which determines how reactive they are. No, yeah, yeah, yeah I knew yeah. that. For the people who didn't. Okay. There you go. Because of the Bohr model, in 1924, Austrian physicist... Ooh, wow. And I, I can't say physicist. In 1924, Austrian physicist Wolfgang Pauli demonstrated that there was not, in fact, a fixed periodicity of eight. This became known as the Pauli Exclusion Principle. Um, this principle states that no electrons can coexist in the same quantum state and show in conjunction with the imperial observations that the existence of four quantum numbers, that there are consequences in the order of shell filling, which determines the order in which the electron shells are filled and explained the periodicity of the periodic table. So rather than the octet rule, it's more the quantum quantum rule or the quantum numbers so your s p d and f numbers oh, yes. yes yes i didn't know that was like quantum yes that's quantum mechanics why wouldn't they tell us because that? that scares so people <laughs> yes yeah, it's quantum mechanics it's very cool uh in 1921, Charles Berry is credited with the first use of the term transition metal, which is used for the elements between the main group elements 2 and main group elements 3. He explained that the properties of these metals are quantitative of their filling of the inner shell rather than the valence shell. So basically, in quantum mechanics, it's kind of weird how the valence shells fill. So in these transition metals, they will fill an inner shell or take an electron from an inner shell and put it on an outer shell just to electrophysically satisfy itself. Okay. I don't know how else to say it. Does that make sense? 
Not. It makes sense because I've taken chemistry. I don't know if it would make sense in a different level. Well, this is true. This is very hard to explain just over audio. Yeah. It it needs some graphs, some tables. Um, so the pro- this proposition that he made was based off of the work of American chemist Gilbert Ann Lewis that suggests the appearance of the D subshell in 4, the F subshell in 6, lengthening the periods from 8 to 18, and then 18 to 32 elements, which is where we get this 32 column thing. And if that... I'm not going to explain all of that right now. There's... I don't... <laughs> So, this is the whole idea of quantum mechanics with SPDF. Um, so, this is a lot of gobbledygook, and you don't need to understand this, but this is very interesting to me. And okay. Just the listeners, not you specifically, Hannah. <laughs> Bohr's research on the electron structure led physicists like Rudenberg to extrapolate the properties undiscovered elements heavier than uranium. Lots of chemists agreed that the next noble gas after radon would most likely have the atomic number of 118. This would follow the transition series of the seventh, um, which was embedded those in the sixth. This was thought that the transitions would include a series of analogs, the rare earth elements characterized by filling the fifth F shell. Um, The elements from actinium to uranium were instead to believe to be part of the fourth series of transition metals because of their high oxidation state. Therefore, they were placed in groups three through six. We love oxidation states. We love states. oxidation states. Um, in 1940, neutinium plutonium were the first transuranic elements that were found, which this is just a fancy way of saying that they had higher numbers than uranium, which at that time was the heaviest metal or heaviest element we knew of. Uh, so they were placed beneath uranium and osmium, respectively. However, there is other research which challenges their placement on the periodic table. So was this the right decision? In 1943, Glenn T. Seaborg, during the Manhattan Project, experienced unexpected difficulties when isolating elements americium and cerium because they were believed to be part of this fourth series of transition metals. Seaborg wondered if these elements belonged in a different series to explain why their chemical properties were different from from the predictions, such as the insustainability of their higher oxidation states. And the Manhattan Project had to do with atomic bombs. I You knew that. I didn't know if the people... I Okay, okay. So they were making some bombs, and they figured some stuff out about the periodic table. And Whoop-dee-doo. <laughs> I'm kidding. In 1945, against the advice of colleagues, he proposed to add the actinide series. So the actinides are the second row of the F block and compromises the elements from actinium to laurentium, and that's that second double star group. And so the star and the double star to make yes. the... Okay. In both actinides and the lanthanide series, the inner electron shell is being filled before the outer one. This proposed and extended the periodic table with additional period of 50 elements reaching element 168. This eighth period was derived from the explanation of the poly principle that placed elements 121 to 138 in the G block, and with the new G subshell would be filled, which that would come, so you would have SPDFG, which they don't mm-hmm. really teach us because you're yeah. not using that unless you're making atomic bombs, apparently. Oh. oh. This, however, did not take into account the realistic results that affect the higher atomic number and electron orbital speed, which would later be studied. Although we do not have an A, the discoverer of Tennessean in 2010 filled the last remaining gap of the seventh, meaning any new elements would go into this eighth, which we would talk about the G. But for now, that's it. For now, no G. No G. So, that's the history of the periodic table. I know it got really, really wordy at the end. I tried to go fast. (laughs) But all of that had to be said to explain why there's those weird two rows and why it is the way it is. Because they have to make things complicated for us. So, this is literally our most boring episode. 
We're so... I love that for us. That's the official title of this podcast. Welcome to the most boring podcast. Put us on when you want to go to sleep. Thank you. Yeah, it's fine. This was like our happy, you know. You, uh, I'm going to shut up. I mean, I had fun. I had fun. I had a great time. Okay. Amazing. Okay, thank you guys for tuning in to Psychoscience, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.